50 degrees Fahrenheit, and perhaps 10 degrees colder at night, and had been doing so for centuries. At Edward and Isabella's wedding, the barons and earls, sleeping in those hundreds of tents, shivered to nighttime temperatures well below freezing. The freeze they were enduring was covering virtually all of Europe. Ports along the Baltic were frozen in for the second time in the preceding five years. The weather was changing. More than that, the climate was changing, and changing in a way that would affect the lives of millions, often enough by bringing those lives to an untimely end. The great conceit of history is that humanity's worst disasters occur within some identifiable and discrete time frame. Whether describing the arrival of a pandemic plague 1,500 years ago or the world wars of the last century, Conventional narratives offer a clear beginning and a decisive conclusion. The reality is more like a bridge collapsing, a minutes-long climax of forces that have been years, sometimes centuries or even millennia, in formation. So it was with the events that transfixed northern Europe during the first decades of the 14th century. Less than a decade after the wedding ceremony at Bologna, the most widespread and destructive famine in European history brought privation and starvation to millions. Its proximate cause was a series of what seemed to its victims to be isolated and unpredictable weather events, summer storms and freezing winters. Its true origins were an almost incomprehensibly complicated mixture of climate, commerce, and conflict, four centuries in gestation, that put tens of millions of men, women, and children in the path of apocalyptic disaster. Those elements can no more be understood in isolation than one of the great medieval tapestries can be appreciated by listing each of the threads that compose it. When such a tapestry is viewed from an appropriate distance, however, the picture comes into focus. From Europe's ninth century onward, the great theme at center stage was the most basic of all, how should a society feed itself? What political and cultural system can allocate, protect, sow, and reap the land that was the ultimate source of food? For Europe, during the four centuries before Edward and Isabella stood before a priest on that cold day in 1308, the answer was a pact, a contract sanctioned by law and sanctified by religion that bound the laborer to the land and the landlord to the laborer. A dozen institutions and doctrines depended on that pact, some of the most significant. Manorialism, the system of land tenure that dominated the agriculture of Europe from the early ninth century and the reign of Charlemagne. It granted rights and duties to the peasants who worked the land, to the sovereign who granted rights of ownership to the land, and to the nobility and gentry who stood in between. Feudalism, the medieval system for legitimizing the use of armed force, again through grants of rights and duties up and down the line, from Europe's lowliest peasants to its most powerful monarchs. The proto-nations under whose protection feudalism and manorialism survived, themselves struggling for legitimacy in medieval Europe, some of them still sovereign into the 21st century, like France, 
some subsumed into larger or luckier opponents, like Flanders. The transnational and hierarchical Catholic Church, with a rescript from God to lead a United States of Europe, and the Bishop of Rome, with the sole authority to sanctify feudal titles, manorial ownership, and the rights of the sovereign. By the beginning of the 14th century, these institutions, manorialism, feudalism, nationalism, and papism, were collectively responsible for feeding a European population that, enabled by four centuries of anomalously mild weather, had grown from 10 to 40 million. Their aggregate success, however, had the seeds of failure built into it. By the time of the wedding of Isabella to Edward, the objectives of each was irrepressibly in conflict with the prerogatives of another. A